दिस इज अज लॉन्ड्री पॉडकास्ट एंड यूर लिस्निंग टू रिपोर्टर्स विदाउट ऑर्डर्स ऑर्डर ऑर्डर हेलो एंड वेलकम टू रिपोर्टर्स विदाउट ऑर्डर्स अ पॉडकास्ट वेर वी टॉक अबाउट वॉट मेड न्यूज वॉट डेंट एंड सम थिंग्स दैट एब्सोल्यूटली एंड विथ मी टूडे इज अन Hi Ayan. Hello Snigdha. Also guys I'm very sad to inform you that uh, this is Ayan's last week at News Laundry. He's going back home to Assam. Ayan would you like to tell our listeners why you're leaving? Yeah, I mean for some personal reasons. So sadly I had to take a decision so I'm going back uh, next week. Uh so this will this is the last podcast last reporters. So, right i know it's uh, we all are very sad but i hope you continue reporting from some yeah i mean yeah, that, that's the conversation touch. i had with uh, raman sir also so i would love to write for news laundry from there uh, maybe some special assignments uh, special reports so the association should hopefully continue in some different form great yeah. looking forward to it Absolutely. Also, um, listeners, I'm very happy to introduce you to another new member of Team News Laundry, Nidhi Suresh. Hi, Nidhi. Hi, Sneha. How have you been? Good. Not so bad. Uh, it's very different joining an organization under a pandemic when you're at home. So, listeners, actually, Nidhi worked for us a couple of years ago. Uh, we're very ha- happy to have you back on board, Nidhi. Yeah, it's it's kind of like homecoming because I actually started out as a reporter with News Laundry. Gharwapsi? Oh, shall we call it? <laughs> I was consciously not saying Gharwapsi, but yes. <laughs> uh, Nidhi, when were you here? I was here between two thousand eighteen and nineteen for close to a year. Okay. So I was reporting for the News Laundry from Kashmir. So I also wasn't exactly based in Delhi. Yeah. Oh, okay. Outstation. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So, uh, Nidhi has previously worked with the Kashmir Observer, which is a local de- uh, daily there. So, uh, Nidhi uh, left for Netherlands, right, to pursue her masters in conflict studies and human rights. Yeah. And then after that, she spent ten months working with Quill Foundation on human rights research and advocacy. Nidhi loves cooking and is of the firm opinion that it is absolutely possible to be an advocate of human rights and a journalist at the same time. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I think this thought stuck to my head a lot more because very recently I came across someone I can now say that I used to look up to who uh, hmm. you know had gave me this uh, strong opinion that she said, you know, you cannot you cannot absolutely be someone who talks about human rights and is a journalist that's completely problematic and it just got me thinking mm-hmm. uh, firstly i was very hurt because to someone i used to look up to as a child telling me this but uh, but it got me thinking and i realized that that's a very absurd position to take because uh, i mean as a journalist you are talking about human beings you're invested in the story of uh, human beings and your reference point whatever it is comes back in some way or the other to the constitution to the rights that these human beings have and ultimately i just think that uh, you are talking about humans you're talking about their rights and so there shouldn't be any problem exactly yeah, yeah. anyway so uh, shall we get to the bizarre news stories you go first sindha me yeah you go okay all right ayan if you insist <laughs> with some exotic information Huh? <laughs> This time not exotic, I guess. Yeah. And <laughs> so, uh, 
So my bizarre story uh, is actually from last week when this Ayush Ministry's virtual training session was happening and the ministry's secretary, who is a certified Ved or a Ayurvedic doctor, his name is Ved Rajesh Kotecha, he said that uh, participants who don't speak in Hindi can leave the meeting because he can't speak in English. So there was a huge controversy regarding his statement yeah. and uh, leaders from the South, especially Tamil Nadu, they condemned his statement, especially Kani Mori. Uh, she actually demanded his suspension and uh, she asked for disciplinary proceedings against him. And yeah. as usual, I mean, you know, it raised the whole issue of language politics in India, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was quite bizarre coming from a central uh, ministry's uh, secretary. So yeah, that is my bizarre news story. What about yours? Okay, so mine is from uh, Vietnam. Uh, this is about a 92-year-old man. His name is uh, Guyen Van Chien. Now, this man has made the news because for the last 80 years, he hasn't touched, like literally he hasn't touched his hair, not even combed, washed, uh, let alone cut it. He hasn't touched it. So now it's uh, more than five meters long. His dreadlocks are more than five meters long. Oh and, my God. Uh, his dreadlocks are uh, taken care of by his fifth son. And this is apparently because of the man's belief in a certain fate. And he says, I quote, this is from a Reuters story. So he says, I believe if I cut my hair, I will die. I dare not to change anything, not even combing it. He basically believes that, I mean, anything that a person is born with should not be touched. Because that's, some, that's something like, you know, going against the nature. So that's what he believes in. And yeah, he's 92. So maybe he's not wrong in his own way. How does he take a bath in general? <laughs> I don't know how he manages that because <laughs> keeping five meters of long hair like positioned <laughs> upward I don't I think it's very challenging but yeah he has his son to look after that so wow. figure it out wow how convenient <laughs> <laughs> what about you Nadi what's your bizarre story for this week yeah, actually, my story is quite serious uh, <laughs> compared to Ayan's. And I mean, I mean, we have right now a treasure trove of options to pick from, considering the way our media is also functioning these days. Actually, I was I, I was also saying the same thing a couple of episodes ago on reporters that you know that everything is so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> even our reports all the stories that we report on like it's based on such bizarre incidents that uh, you know yeah no I mean I don't even want to go into this whole media trial and not even a good media trial a terrible media trial of Riya Chakraborty and then and then this thing that happened yesterday of Rasode Me Kaun Tha thing that's gone viral in a way only the Indians understand but uh, so I think the news that I want to present as bizarre is um I'm going to pick the Prashant Bhushan trial as the most uh, bizarre news of the week because for the very first time, it looked like uh, the Supreme Court was almost on its knees and begging Mr. Bhushan to just say sorry. And I think the two things I find particularly bizarre in the case is that, I mean, it's the same judge, right? In 2012, Justice Mishra had said that uh, in a contempt of court uh, case against Mamta Banerjee, where she had actually said that there was a pillar of corruption in the judiciary. He then said that she had not crossed the Lakshman Rekha and that everyone was entitled to their own opinion. And today, the same judge who's just days away from his retirement has said that Prashant Bhushan has to apologize. 
but there's been a lot of changes in these seven years between Mamta Banerjee's case and Prashant Bhushan's case. The difference is actually that we've had, you know, Supreme Court judges coming out and criticizing the judiciary. We've had senior judges criticizing. We've had a sitting ju- uh, chief justice accused of sexual harassment. We've had, you know, sudden mysterious transfers of high court judges after they rule against a BJP party. And the second absurd thing is that at no point has the Supreme Court asked uh, Mr. Bhushan if he stands by what he's what he has said or tweeted. And if yes, what the evidence is, the only thing that the, in fact, even the attorney general during the hearing suggested an inquiry and the judges just said that, you know, this will be a never ending inquiry. I mean, of course, that's the job of the judiciary. If not, if not you, then who else do it, right? That's a bit too convenient. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it, yesterday's hearing literally was, uh, it looked like, you know, this classroom experience where your teacher tells you, go stand in the corner, think about what you did. And then I don't care about what you think or, or what you did. Just come back and say sorry. And it was just clear yeah. that the court wasn't concerned about truth. They weren't concerned about truthfulness. They weren't concerned about evidence. They just wanted at any cost Mr. Bhushan to say sorry. And it was absolutely fantastic to see that Prashant Bhushan did not say sorry. Right, right. Yeah, I right. mean, uh, you actually attended the hearing, right? There was a, I, nobody's allowed to attend the hearing, but there was this uh, uh, simultaneous thing happening organized by uh, Yogendra Yadav online, where as the court proceedings were going on, a bunch of activists and lawyers were sort of dissecting it. So that I attended. So Nidhi, we all know that, uh, you know, the court given uh, Prashant Bhushan a couple of days to rethink his uh, statement and apologize, right? So yesterday, again, the court during the hearing gave him time to uh, rethink and apologize, which he refused to do again. Eventually, what happened? So uh, there were two cases against Prashant Bhushan. One was the Tehelka magazine case, which has now been referred to a larger bench, and that will be heard on September 10th. The other, regarding the tweets, around 3.30, the court adjourned. Justice Mishra uh, sort of gave his closing statements, and he said, you know, what can I do? He's not apologizing. and uh, he almost pleaded with Bhushan saying that, no, what will you lose by apologizing? He said, apology is a magic word, has a healing touch. It's a balm on like wounds of people you have hurt. <laughs> but that's sort of like daddy kind of like papa approach, ki beta bol dena type of thing. Yeah, he was like, oh, you'll, you'll be, uh, you'll be uh, revered like Mahatma Gandhi or something around ah, those lines yeah, right? yeah. but ironically I think this. Uh, I had a conversation with Yogendra Adav yesterday in the evening and he was saying that ironically like this is only Mahatma Gandhi has previously done set such an example in court you know where he refused to apologize for something and, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Prashant Bhushan has very interestingly used the word contempt here because he said if, if he apologizes then it will be a contempt of his conscience yeah but although in his statement, which is also very, uh, I mean, that's that's the pity, right? Like Mr. Bhushan today, the court is asking him to choose between either contempt of court or contempt of conscience. And an individual ideally should not have to choose between the two. Yes. Absolutely. So eventually what happened, Nidhi? Uh, yeah, it's been deferred to the more appropriate bench. I think it will. Uh, we will hear something over the next few days because Justice Mishra is also going to be retiring in a few days. So probably he'll deliver a quantum before, yeah, before he leaves. 
All right, so moving on to our discussion about the latest reports on News Laundry. Uh, before we begin, I want to tell all the new listeners about News Laundry. We are a 100% ad-free news platform and we need your support to stay afloat. So please do subscribe to us and pay to keep news free. You can go to our website and click on the subscribe button on the top right corner of the website. Uh, also, listeners, if you're listening to this podcast on Stitchers, iTunes, or any other podcast platform, please go to our website and do check it out. We, uh, apart from podcasts, we also do, you know, ground reports and video interviews. So there is a lot of interesting stuff on our website. So please go there and check what we do. All right. So uh, Nidhi, we'll begin with you, right? Uh, let me just give a little bit of background to our listeners. So most of you must be aware of the Wall Street Journal's report on how Facebook ignored its own hate speech policy and uh, allowed anti-Muslim posts on its platform to avoid, uh, you know, ruining its relationship with India's governing party, the BJP. Uh, the Wall Street Journal report had said that uh, one of Facebook India's top executives, uh, whose name is Anki Das, refused to apply the company's rules on BJP politicians and many other Hindu nationalist individuals and groups. Uh, one particular case uh, of how Facebook ignored its own policy was the case of T. Raja Singh, who is a BJP legislator from Telangana. And he's known for his avid speeches and uh, anti-Muslim stunts. So the Wall Street Journal said that the right-wing politician had uh, demanded that mainly Muslim Rohingya refugees should be shot. And he also called India's Muslim traitors and he threatened to demolish mosques. On All of this happened on his Facebook posts. In March this year, the reporter said that Facebook responsible for policing the platform found that Singh had violated the hate speech rules and they suggested that his account should be banned. But Anki Das refused to act against him, saying that, you know, Facebook's business in India would suffer and India happens to be Facebook's largest market, right? Now, Nidhi here wrote an excellent report on Facebook's hypocritical stance on human rights and hate speech, not just in India, but around the world. Also, uh, before we start the discussion, full disclosure, Facebook is one of the sponsors of the Miriam, which is an annual event uh, organized by News Laundry in partnership with Teamwork Arts. All right. So, Nidhi, can you tell us more about Facebook's role in aggravating the riots that took place in February this year? And also, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg even referred to Kapil Mishra's speech at some point. Can you also give us a little more context about it? Yeah, I mean, uh, when Wall Street Journal broke the story on 14th August, uh, there was in general a lot to say about Facebook. And there was also, I think this this particular story that we did at News Laundry uh, came from the fact that there was a lot of expression of shock on social media. You know, how could Facebook do this? Is, is Facebook now a pro-BJP uh, platform and all of that? And maybe it's also the format of social media that forces newsrooms and subsequently its viewers and readers to believe that every breaking news report is a shocking news report, right? And the, and the truth is not every breaking news report is a shocking news report. And the story which I did is trying to look at that, that yes, while Wall Street Journal story is most definitely a massive breaking news story, it's not a shocking news story. And it's not a new or unique thing to Facebook. Right. And, the, and and so my story looks at three cases uh, specifically, Myanmar, Sri Lanka and Philippines. 
all three are developing countries all three have seen a fair share of violence and all the three have major a majority of their population on facebook in fact in philippines uh, facebook had launched yes. internet.org which is an app that gave the entire population free access to internet services including uh, facebook so they had almost majority of their population already on facebook and that's the power that a platform like this has and in all three countries i won't go uh, very specifically into all three but in all the three countries either the public or the court or someone from the opposition party or a journalist has brought to attention the role of facebook in the violence mm. facebook has this very i think smart strategy but they never deny these things right whenever someone has brought the allegation saying that you know, facebook has done this and facebook has played a role they've never denied what they have done is they'll either constitute an independent inquiry and then issue a very you know uh, sort of generic public apology like for example both in sri lanka and myanmar they issued apologies saying you know we are not doing enough we know we're not doing enough to prevent the platform from being used for inciting offline violence and and then it somehow just gets lost in that you know and every time it happens you know the first time it sets a great precedence where you think that oh wow such a big uh, platform when you make such an accusation you expect them to come back and say nahi humne to kuch nahi kiya this you cannot blame us mm. but uh, then they immediately come and say ha hum to sorry hai then what do you say then right you don't say you can't yeah yeah hope that yeah. they'll get better but then when it happens repeatedly then it's problematic then it's a very orchestrated response and the more you know the more uh, serious case is of myanmar where uh, you know the case of myanmar and uh, possible genocide that they have conducted against the rohingya muslim there muslims there is now a matter of court and um, facebook yeah. also admitted very clearly in 2018 that they had a very very central role mm. in spreading this violence and they taken down a bunch of posts of uh, public officials who had incited violence right mm. and uh, they also said that they'll be preserving this information whatever they've taken down whenever it's required right and this year gambia which actually took uh, myanmar to court asked for those mm. uh, uh, for, for all that information and then facebook rejected the rejected the request claiming some claim that you know uh, it's very broad and unduly intrusive and then under this uh, special act called the stored communication act in the uh, us federal law reporting uh, right. that they said that you know this we cannot share this information because uh, it prevents us from releasing communication to a third party on a whim right firstly this was not on a whim it is not uh, vague gambia has specifically asked for 17 profiles and their like information and then uh, there's this really beautiful report by time magazine where they've broken down this claim by facebook and uh, they said mm-hmm. that you know the law is intended to protect the privacy of individuals it's not a law that shields actual actors you, know? you can't use the law for that right right yeah. and also i uh, if i'm not mistaken these were public uh, profiles in the first place yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. they're public yeah. profiles which facebook decided to take down not the individuals who decided to take right. down Yeah, this is completely bizarre. Yeah, when I was reading this story, uh, so Nidhi has discuss, uh, discussed the situation in three countries: uh, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and Philippines. But I think out of all the three countries in Philippines, it became almost clear that Facebook was working at the behest of 
the man who became you know the president in 2016 because they had launched uh, this uh, internet.org a year back and yeah. they had got all the people almost the entire population on record got all the data required then uh, there were you know campaigns to influence the voters and then again there was another instance of a senator who was kind of vocal against the president but facebook allowed you know a smear campaign against her on their platform so it was only you know pulled down after she got arrested so i mean things are very very murky yeah i mean it's completely hypocritical this constant stance of facebook that ki no yeah we care about human rights yes there will be content moderators and then what like it's all it's all talk exactly. right uh even maria ressa who's one of the most prominent journalists uh, from philippines and she's been on media rumble also said something along the lines of how facebook has actually killed democracy in her country and many other countries i mean it's playing an active role in doing that yes yeah right yeah and so, she's facing uh, charges herself yeah exactly yeah so in all these cases the common factor is hatred being spread via posts in regional and a lot of time it's happening in regional languages right yeah yeah which is what uh, facebook is using as an excuse right because it doesn't have people who understand these languages right how do you think facebook can tackle this like or can should they diversify their teams that could be one option like what are the other options available i mean you know i do think that and facebook has themselves said that they need to get more people who speak regional language on their content moderation teams because like in sri lanka a lot of the posts were in sinhalese and that's one specific case where they uh, said that they need to get more regional language uh, moderators on board that is definitely an option but the other thing that i think is a larger story here is that uh, you know while even india right now we're we've you know every party member is condemning facebook saying that there's uh, you know how can you not uh, regulate hate speech we don't have a hate speech legislation right we don't have uh, we have an we have something called sedition which looks at you know whether you've made uh, statements that are anti national but we don't have hate speech legislation that actually holds people accountable for just inciting violence i think that you know if we're going up if we're going ahead and saying that an online social media platform should start regulating its content which it must i also think that that will only go hand in hand if it's strengthened by state action right and and if the state takes a stand very clearly that we will also not allow hate speech i mean we don't have a definition of hate speech today a very yeah. clear cut definition yeah. yes the un has given a definition but as a as a state we don't have a we don't have a very clear definition of what is hate speech are there clear hate speech laws in other countries no i don't know i mean that's a story we're actually looking at doing over the next week and we're planning to scan uh, hate speech legislations across different countries and see you know uh, where does where do different countries stand on this so i i yeah. i can't get yeah. to comment on that Yes. Yes. Okay. Also, I don't know if it already exists, but maybe like a watchdog mechanism to police a platforms like Facebook that actually has some real powers, you know, to hold the platform ac- accountable. I don't know if there are any, but um, the question is, should they be appo- appointed by the government, or should should it be constituted by you know common people, common citizens who keep an eye on this kind of content? Yeah I mean I do think the a watchdog mechanism is of course always the best but ultimately you know if you are a watchdog where do you bring a platform to how do you hold a platform accountable and if you don't have 
a court which is going to decide and a court i'm assuming will be the most objective and fair space unlike the current judiciary if you if you don't have that space then uh, then it's not going to happen you know you can only hold an uh, hold a platform accountable so far you can defame it you can you can reduce the number of people who sign up on it and hope to appeal to the common sense and conscience of people but that only goes so far Mm, yeah right i think there can be a statutory body you know which is empowered to take action apart from you know pulling up uh, so i think that can be helpful but again therefore that also there has to be a legislation so yeah. the sooner the better right if it's a government watchdog i mean or if it's like you know uh, constituted by the government again like like you know you said a uh, conflict of interest is going to play a role it doesn't really solve the issue yeah remember weeks ago Markaberg was thoroughly grilled by U.S. Rep. Pramila Jaipal, right, about uh, antitrust issues and big tech companies, right, especially on how Facebook kills its smaller companies, like by cloning them or buying them off, and if they don't yield, they even resort to threatening, like for example, how uh, what it did with Instagram Stories, right, uh, from the Snapchat thing. Then uh, apparently now they even making a product. to rival tiktok uh, that session was quite satisfying to watch because mark zuckerberg looked completely floundered like you should have seen his face which is also not new this look on mark zuckerberg's face is also not new at the same face when aoc uh, cortez like grilled him nidhi what i wanted to ask you was uh, yesterday delhi's delhi assembly's panel on peace and harmony this is the first time i've heard of it decided to summon facebook officials uh, in connection with the allegations in the wall street journal report right hmm. do you see that kind of grilling happening here in india and more importantly do you think public or us we we will get to watch <laughs> i mean i really have no clue because i really don't know because you know these are these are members from the ruling party who facebook have supported and uh, i mean i keep going back to the judiciary because i'm still like so surprised at what happened in pushan yesterday i mean we've had we've had high court judges you know transferred overnight so i really don't we've had like chief justices being compromised you know so do i trust a delhi assembly panel on peace and harmony it's hopeful but do i feel like something might actually come out of it i don't really know like is this is this going to work out i have no idea so I really hope that it does, but I, I I don't see a lot coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, if I can chip in, I I personally don't see that happening. That you know, culture of you know rigorously questioning and you know persisting with with an aggressive and inquisitive attitude. I don't see that happening here. I mean, be it Facebook or be it some individual, because it's very different. I mean, if you, I mean, we 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 talk about you know a lot of problematic things about the United States, but. even today if you look at how journalists talk to the president how they interview them mm. it's a totally different culture and we have i think completely forgotten how it feels in this country so that's completely missing from the scene right. in case of facebook also i don't see i mean the conversation going beyond a certain extent unless like an opposition takes a very strong stand i don't know how much the public can uh, can push for this let's see what shashi tharoor in this case he is the chairperson right of the committee i mean he has spoken about it but let's see what he does yeah that hearing is on the 2nd of september i guess yeah yeah mm. that see. should be interesting yeah right so thank you so much nidhi for talking to us about your report now coming to ayan 
listeners, Ayan uh, recently reported on the plight of railway porters in India. And uh, when the pandemic hit the country, you know, uh, we all know how passenger trains were uh, suspended, right? Only goods trains were being, uh, were running to um, transport essential commodities. Now, obviously, the decision was a huge blow to thousands of porters. And um, recently, on August 11th, the government announced that it would continue to suspend all these passenger trains, except for the special trains, right? Yeah. Uh, Ayan actually went to New Delhi railway station to speak to some of these porters. Here is what one of them said. That was Akil, who is a porter or a coolie at New Delhi Railway Station. So, Ayan, first of all, tell me what made you pick this story. How did you chance upon it? Well, I mean, we have all seen how uh, the pandemic situation has affected uh, the economy across all sectors almost. So, uh, I mean, then again, obviously, uh, the railway porters also fall in a category of people who have been the hardest hit. So, yeah, I mean, this came up uh, in, a, in an edit meeting, actually, and this, one, this was an editorial decision. And so, uh, accordingly, uh, I, I decided to do the story. So, we went to the station and uh, we talked to a number of porters there. And it's the same mm-hmm. story. I mean, everybody has suffered a great deal of, you know, misery, hardship during this period. And uh, now in, in India, there are uh, more than 20,000 licensed coolies, uh, I mean, across stations. And in Delhi, I can, uh, you know, cite some figures of some of the, you know, prominent stations. For example, in, uh, in the New Delhi station, there are, say, close to 1,500 licensed coolies. Then again, at the Old Delhi station, there are about 1,000. Uh, at the Anand Vihar terminal, there are 97, and between 500 and 600 work at the Hazrat Nizamuddin station. So all these, all these, uh, I mean, most of these uh, porters, they went back to their, you know, home villages and hometowns just before the lockdown or rightly after it. I mean, I'm talking about the last week of March. So when uh, the prime minister made the announcement, and uh, these people went there because I mean, most of them thought that the situation would be like this. Uh, for say two weeks, three weeks max, but they none of them had the idea that it would you know continue for such a long time and it would be so bad. So they went back. They managed to you know find a seat in a crowded bus or on a crowded train, and then somehow they reached their hometown, 300, 400, 500 kilometers away. But uh, they had to stay back for a long time, and because uh, the railways, as you pointed out, had suspended passenger train services. Mm-hmm. On on May one, the railways started operating certain trains, but these were special trains. These were shramik special trains, and these were to carry uh, you know thousands of migrants, people like the porters themselves. So these were these were fewer in numbers, and again, then in the in the in the next one one and a half months, the railways you know step by step started operating some more trains, some special pairs or uh, fifteen pairs of Rajdhani trains and some other special trains. But uh, if you compare the number of trains currently operating uh, to the number of trains which were operating before the pandemic situation, uh, it's a very very uh, contrasting situation. So according to a report by the India Brand Equity Foundation. Around 13,500 passenger trains used to run in the country. But now the number is 230 or something. So you can imagine the fall. And again, uh, one very interesting thing about the situation is that, which a number of porters pointed out to me, is that 
you know a great number of the passengers traveling on these trains currently are very poor people so they cannot you know go for porter service because they are financially helpless themselves they are people like the porters themselves they don't have any you know money in their pockets so they just pick up their own stuff and manage to find a seat and go back to their villages and hometowns so a significant portion of the passengers are poor people so they cannot afford to pay porterage so that is also affecting uh, you know the fate of these porters and obviously there there is the fear of contracting the virus that fear is very much there among the passengers so that's why uh, in general if i'm to cite a figure then you can you know safely say that their incomes have fallen by more than half you know if they were making say 500 to 600 rupees a day before the pandemic now it's not more than say 250 300 maximum i mean some some are earning even you know as low as like 100 150 rupees a day on an average so i mean it's it's really bad and uh, after talking to them uh, many of them said they could not pay their rent uh, some landlords were you know generous enough to forgo the rent for two months but again when they came back they had to pay the rent for the next two months and many of them told me that if the situation continues like this they won't be able to you know live in delhi so they'll have to again maybe go back to their own villages and hometowns right also ayan can you tell us uh, i mean it, the it, the situation sounds so bad right it's um, yeah. quite saddening is there any kind of assistance from the government no that's exactly i mean i'm i'm glad you pointed it out so that's a very interesting thing because it's not that uh, there wasn't any effort from uh, the railways because a number of porters told me that in the month of april all these porters uh, were asked to you know give in give some uh, uh, basic details like their bank account numbers their aadhar card numbers and you know certain uh, details but uh, it's been more than 3 months now about almost like 4 months now there has been no development in that regard and when these porters when they ask railway officials you know as to what happened to this process they don't get any answer so i also contacted uh, a couple of railway officials and when i asked them uh, what happened to this process they were clueless i mean some said i have no idea but then i was like i mean how can you have no idea because this is not something that one or two porters is telling me this is something i have heard from at least 10 to 15 porters so this is a thing that actually happened and now they are you know they are they are clueless they are expecting some help from the government but they have no idea what's happening so you have to give some answer and then this official was like okay i mean i i totally get it if there so many people are saying then obviously it must have happened but give me some more time i'll you know find out and furnish the information so i mean it was a very vague situation i mean nobody had any idea what's happening but these porters they had given their details expecting some sort of assistance at least you know a one time assistance of say 2000 or 3000 rupees or something but now that it's been like almost 4 months now uh, they have stopped expecting uh, from the railways or the government right nidhi do you have any questions for ayan yeah ayan actually i was just really curious modi had announced this uh, atmanirbhar uh, bharat abhiyan and said you know a lot of people could avail and receive food under this scheme yeah have these migrant workers been able to access anything through these sort of support systems that the government announced they would be offering so uh, what i found out is that when uh, you know these people were you know back in their village or in their hometown they did receive you know some rations or some food from you know their state governments but that was as like normal citizens that was not as really reporters and this is what you know some of them pointed out 
कि दे आर लाइक सी हम तो यहाँ सालों से काम कर रहे हैं दिस इज समथिंग इवन माई फोर फादर्स ऑल्सो डेड देर आर पीपल लाइक देर ऑल्सो for working mm-hmm. for you know 20 30 years themselves and then even before that their you know ancestors had done this so they are like hamara to kaam railway se hai so obviously we expect from the railways as well but as a collective as, as porters we haven't received anything ab ghar gaye the wahan kuch mil gaya wo alag baat hai but as as porters we haven't received anything from the government so that's mm-hmm. their complaint right Ayan, since you're leaving, I wanted to ask you if you can share some of your uh, your best or say most challenging reporting experiences at News Laundry. Uh, I mean, the kind of stories <laughs> that are going to stay with you, or uh, maybe the ones that you know actually helped you sharpen your skills as a reporter. Yeah. So I mean, I can't say they're like the best or what, but yeah. Uh, some stories which yeah if you ask me i can you know immediately recall will, will be first it's a ground report from uh, february and uh, this was just at the beginning of the riots and uh, this story came out on the 25th or 26th february so i i remember this story and i'm going to remember it for a very long time because before this i hadn't reported in a violence hit area and violence also not like on a limited scale it was a full blown riot right and uh, the story came out on the 25th okay so i had gone to northeast delhi on the 24th and i still remember you know i i i had just had lunch and i came downstairs at office and then raman sir uh, immediately called me and he said why don't you just rush to northeast delhi something big is happening there so i immediately took an auto uh, got the got on the metro and then reached there so by the time i reached there it was uh, around 4:30 and uh, once i got off the nearest metro station uh, it was very difficult for me to find an auto rickshaw because nobody was willing to go there because some amount of disturbance had already broken out the previous day so people were very skeptical but somehow i managed to go there uh, found something found the vehicle there and went there now it was very challenging for me and because that entire stretch of road from uh, mauthpur babarpur towards kardampuri that entire stretch of road was divided into certain pockets you know say one pocket is dominated by the muslim residents the other is dominated by the hindu residents then again the other by the opposite community so it was divided like that it was like a battlefield and people were very scared policemen were you know just patrolling and stationed at some intervals so it was very challenging because first of all it was difficult to move around because there was still you know stone pelting going on uh, from time to time yeah and this was like right in the middle 25th of 24th of february was it was just when the riots yeah, started the, so, yeah exactly so this was like one of the earliest reports to you know come out of the riot situation but i went there and uh, it was very challenging i was obviously i was scared as well so i talked to one group of people they told me you know a version of the story but then again i had to go to the other side to listen to the other version of the story and that that you know that movement from one part to the other was very scary then again uh, the the other second side would tell me something which again i would have to verify or that i would have to again you know walk another kilometer or two uh, to go to some other location and it was winter so it was getting dark as well right. so it was very challenging and uh, of course in the afternoon or in the daytime there were a lot of reporters but i reached late so by then most of the reporters had left the place so even if something happened you know 
maybe i mean there was no one to immediately attend to me so i had to move very carefully and it was very scary because people were you know openly roaming around on the streets with rods and iron with sticks and stones in their hands and i remember because while i was talking to a group of people outside a lane mm-hmm. a group of you know rioters uh, just came you know started running on the streets they had sticks and rods in their hands and they started pelting stones on commercial establishments and houses lining the street and that happened right in front of my eyes obviously policemen wow. were also not far something which became a big question about the police's role and that is also news laundry in news laundry we have investigated into uh, through our nn sena project so all these things were happening and it was a very you know scary situation something you definitely I'll remember for a long time and in fact uh, at the kaldampuri site while i was reporting i was talking to the local people there mm. suddenly a rumor had broken out that stone pelting had started huh. then everyone started running and and there was a chance of a stampede so but luckily some uh, local people there uh, it was a muslim dominated localities uh, three four local people there who were you know like nicely talking to me and uh, telling me whatever i was asking them so they immediately uh, guarded me and uh, suggested me to take a sh- uh, lane and just move ahead so all these things happened i mean it was very scary very challenging but yeah it's it's fruitful also i mean uh, to come out of a situation like that and report on what happened and yeah, it was fruitful and also uh, the next day uh, i received uh, an email from the bbc and they Uh, asked me to be on their world service radio for the evening bulletin uh, talking about the situation so yeah that happened so it was a very fruitful experience challenging <laughs> but yeah right let me just tell the uh, listeners uh, in case you're wondering this report is on newsonly.com and it is titled this is hindu awakening what exactly happened in northeast delhi over the past two days yes i'm just you know a lot of times when you report i think in in such like high violent uh, zones you also have to leave out a lot of things that uh, at least this is from my little bit of experience that you end up having to leave out a lot of things in the report like a lot of immediate things and moments that you might not be able to capture were there was there like something that you sort of had to would have really liked to include in the report but kind of had to leave out because of maybe like the strain of objective uh, of not objectivity but the kind of format journalism requires of you yeah yeah no i i i totally uh, get your uh, questions yeah i mean uh, but in this case what exactly happened was that for me for the first challenge was to establish the sequence of events because it was still you know the early phase of the riots and nobody exactly knew what had happened how it had started i mean of course there were talks of kapil mishra's speech going on but again you have to establish a sequence so it took me some time to understand that sequence because one side is saying something the other side is contesting that so it took me some time to establish that and then again how it happened how it affected the people what kind of damage it had unleashed on the area so those things were there but yeah i mean coming out of the situation at that point i couldn't say you know what i had missed out on or what i could have covered more because it was still very unclear as as the riots progressed things became you know more clear we came to know about more details so mm. i think in a in a situation like this when things are so vague things are contested by each other i think it's kind of difficult to you know figure out what you are missing out on or what you can you know do more mm. yeah but obviously it's it's about you know spending more time on the ground in any case in in, yeah. the, in any situation but as you have you know pointed out because this was a violent area i couldn't spend you know more time in beyond the limit yeah 
I spent around five hours. I I remember I reached home at around nine thirty. But beyond that, I couldn't do that because it was too scary, mm-hmm. too risky. And were you asked if if you were Hindu or Muslim? Or did you also like sort of had to constantly prove that you're on you know you're a Hindu? Yeah, I mean, uh, two or three people asked me that, and uh, once I you know told them my name, so there was no problem. Uh, they were you know were having a free willing conversation, and I think many of the rioters, many of the you know people were very young people so maybe they were too excited to reveal details it's good for a reporter but it's again very disturbing otherwise so you know some of them i mean clearly told me how they had planned it how they had called people from other localities and how people came on bikes you know holding rods so it was like calling you know a regiment of army to attack uh, on the other side so it was like that and many people told me all these things in very clear detail i mean they maybe they they were too confident of uh, the law, in, I mean, the law enforcement agencies, or I don't know what. Or they were uh, very confident excited. that you are Hindu and they, you are on their side. Exactly. Maybe they thought I would, you yeah. know, sympathize with their uh, actions or whatever. But yeah. yeah mm-hmm. uh, but in right in front of my eyes, I clearly saw, you know, this group of people just uh, outside uh, the Mojpur Babarpur Chowk. I mean, there only. So they were uh, stopping, you know, passing auto, auto rickshaws or scooters or cars, and clearly asking. You know uh, the people inside what their religious domination was. Mm. So these things I saw clearly in front of my eyes, and I, in some cases they were like putting you know tikas on the forehead if they found out that the you know rider was a Hindu. So they were like, "Ha, ye lagalo, tum to hamare bhai ho." So things mm. like that. You know, I find this so interesting, and I think it's like probably a separate like it it, it has potential for a separate podcast itself. But just how. Uh, this government has changed the way uh, the nature of reporting that you know the reporter's identity sort of uh, defines the information that you might get on ground. So true. And uh, I mean, it, it's been there in terms of gender for a while. I think that you know, if you're a woman, you get a particular kind of narrative. Uh, but today, it's also about like you know, Hindu Muslim, and I'm sure it's also been there in in ca- when you report on caste issues or when you're reporting in a place where there's a lot of like caste discrimination. But today it's become so uh, such a thing that you have to first go tell your name and then you get the story. And someone yeah, with yeah. a different name gets a different story, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, for example, the whole uh, attack on caravan journalists, they actually asked his name. And when they found out he is Muslim, then they beat him up. And how? Even during the riots, like uh, a lot of journalists got, you know, badly beaten up or abused. And my, my, one of my reports of that period was on this only the attack on journalists while doing their job mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Yeah. it's a right. very precarious situation alright uh, that was a great discussion thank you so much uh, both of you and Ayan wish you all the best and yeah. please do thank keep you. filing stories for News Laundry and so that we can keep getting you on reporters I hope this <laughs> yeah, is not your last nice. episode hopefully <laughs> not yes. yes hope to see you sometime Ayan oh yeah sure sure once this pandemic is over, yeah, we <laughs> yes. should all get together. Yes, we should. And uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, we shall finish off with some recommendations. Who wants to go first? Uh, so I'd like to recommend this lecture, which was actually delivered by the uh, former Supreme Court judge, uh, Deepak Gupta. He gave this lecture on 25th February. This was in the backdrop of uh, the NTCA protests. And right before the pandemic hit and the migrant situation sort of happened, uh, he delivered this lecture as an inaugural lecture at the Supreme Court Bar Association. It's called uh, Democracy and Defend. 
it's available as a youtube lecture as well as uh, the entire speech is available in a script format and uh, ayan so i'm uh, recommending an article from the new yorker which came out on uh, august 20 Mm-hmm. and the title is uh, what does boredom do to us and for us now since the covid crisis began in one of the you know one of the phenomenon is that people are you know faced with a lot of mental health issues and i think boredom is also one of you know the factors one of the phenomena happening so this is a very interesting essay because it puts the entire you know idea of boredom in a historical perspective and it argues that obviously uh, there has been a rise in this phenomenon with the advent of the modern capitalist society because it has you know exposed us to new forms of consumption and uh, you know uh, amusement so there is always a need to fill in your life so there has been a rise but 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 again if you look at it historically uh, this is actually not new i mean there have been instances there have been you know mentions of uh, this kind of a feeling among people long back centuries back mm-hmm. so i won't go into much more details but this is a very interesting essay and it's written by margaret talbot so i think it's it's a really nice read and anyway the new yorker uh, essays are yeah brilliant good read so <laughs> yeah this is my so recommendation well, yeah. the writing is so beautiful exactly all right uh, so my recommendation this week is this book called the last emperor by edward bear So uh, Bear was actually a foreign correspondent war correspondent for Reuters Times Life and uh, Newsweek I think he was the longest uh, with Newsweek and the book is a very candid biography of Puyi who was the last emperor of the Qing dynasty that ruled China from uh, the 1600s till the early 20th century and the book is an account of the dramatic turn of events uh, you know from his life as this really spoiled king who was uh, treated almost like a god you know to later when the japanese installed him as a puppet emperor of manchuria and ultimately he was imprisoned by the red guard the book uh, actually gives a great insight into the politics and culture of china in the backdrop of the cultural revolution you know that was sta- started by mao zedong and yeah. it has like really vivid descriptions of the forbidden city which is like you know it really uh, intrigued me and uh, the rituals that were followed in the family and you know his uh, life you know with uh, multiple concubines <laughs> all of that uh, like full on details and actually the book is um, based on a film of the same name it was directed by the italian filmmaker bernardo bertolucci and it is actually based on a biography of puy by a different author the the film and while they were going to and it was the first film that actually got permission to shoot inside the forbidden city and uh, so when they were going to shoot this film i think the director and the producer they knew edward bear uh and they invited him to come along and work with the f- production team so due- because of that he got like access to a lot of people and information right so uh the book is quite intriguing definitely worth reading so yeah that's my recommendation so listeners if you liked what you heard please do rate our podcast on itunes or whatever platform you tuned into we also have a bunch of other podcasts like hafta and awful and awesome better the rating more the reach and that means more subscribers and that in turn means better content
Also, we're very eager to hear your feedback. So do write to us at contact at newslaundry.com with reporters without orders in the subject line. You could also leave your comments on Twitter or Facebook or our Instagram handle. And uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing from you. With that, this podcast is adjourned. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.